Well, good morning, everyone. We are live. Um, yeah, a couple of announcements. We do have a, a quarterly church meeting after the service today, so please stick around for that. It should be a great time. Uh, we're going to talk about um, some of the upcoming events, things happening behind the scenes, as well as uh, looking forward to next year and the church camp that we are planning. Um, we will have a, a men's uh, breakfast in November, as well as a screening for the Jesus Revolution movie, which kind of goes about the, it talks about the beginnings of Calvary Chapel from Greg Laurie's perspective. So should be good. Uh, looking forward to those activities. But yeah, I encourage you to stick around, have some morning tea, and then come back in the sanctuary so we can uh, have that meeting. So looking forward to it. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to hear from you today. Lord, I pray that uh, we would humble our hearts before you, come before you hungry and thirsty to receive of your truth, that we would live it out, that we wouldn't just get facts or information. We do want to learn, Lord, but we want to grow. So we pray you would uh, make this time spiritually fruitful, practical, uh, that there would be application in our lives we can take to heart and that we would praise and glorify you because you are holy. You are awesome. You, uh, you reign and rule over all. And so, Lord, we submit to you and we rejoice to do your will and to hear your word and to proclaim it through obedience and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes 9 is where we'll be today. It is possible to have something too much is something that you enjoy. Have you ever had a food that you really liked and you, you overate and then you couldn't even look at the thing for a while? Or maybe you still don't. I, I remember a time when I was a kid that uh, we had, were having dinner and we had these planters cheese balls. It was something that we, we rarely would have. It's kind of, I, I don't really know what it would be like, but uh, I liked them. I really like them. And uh, I ate so many that I, I couldn't look at it like a fake cheese dusted snack for years, maybe 10 years at least, uh, without feeling queasy. Like I just, I could not have them. And I learned to savor foods rather than pig out on them. I limited my intake. I would say, okay, I, I will eat one of these a day because I want to stretch out that flavor. You know, I want to savor it. And uh, it, the meals we enjoy, there, there's going to be an end to them. Uh, but God provides us the capacity to enjoy it and to benefit from it. And we had a rule growing up that when you were served a meal, you were required, you were responsible to eat all of it. Um, especially if you were hoping for dessert, that that was just a non-negotiable. And you could, there were a few approaches. You could just eat what you didn't like first, just to get it over with. Or you could push it around your plate or kind of hide it under something and try to ignore it. But that never worked. Uh, my parents were, were very savvy. Um, now, Jesus was not like a picky eater when he was given his father's will. He, he chose to embrace everything that God put before him. And even when it meant the cross, he went to the cross and before Jesus went to the cross, he was in the garden of Gethsemane. People came to arrest him. Peter lashes out with the sword, cuts off Malchus's ear. And John 18, 11 says, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup, which my father has given me? It's like there was a cup that God, the father had given the son. And it was not for him to ignore it, 
to pretend it wasn't there, but to drink it to the full. And he did so with joy. He didn't try to avoid the crucifixion. He didn't delay it a little extra. He didn't hope that God wouldn't notice. Like he, he delighted to do the will of God with joy. He delighted to demonstrate God's love for lost sinners. And he savored doing the will of the father. That's what he loved to do. He loved to be an example for us to follow by faith. And so when we try to do our own will, we want to go our own way. We feed the flesh. We end up being empty, but God, he sustains us to do God's will and to delight in it. So Ecclesiastes nine, starting in verse one, we take up our text. It says, for I considered all this in my heart that I, so that I could declare it all that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. Solomon had been observing the life and experiences of people under the sun. And he says, you can see what's happening in the world, but you have no idea what God is doing. You can't figure out God's plan from beginning to end. He, he finished the previous chapter going over that. And because God's thoughts and his ways are higher than ours, Solomon wisely acknowledged our limitations of understanding um, and the supremacy of God. And in this book, Solomon's views, they're, they're swinging from uh, an inescapable destiny and fate to arbitrary random chance. He's like some, you know, the good people, the people who are righteous and fear God, they sacrifice bad things happen to them. And then there's people who don't fear God. And it seems good things happen to them as well. So it's not, it's not so binary as I thought. I, I don't understand what God's doing. Sometimes I can't comprehend how he's accomplishing his work or his will. And maybe this was a way of trying to make sense of situations that he couldn't understand. But by faith in God, we can affirm we are safe in his hands, that he, we are under his protection, his provision, which some people could credit good or bad luck. He observed all things come alike to all the righteous, the wicked, one who fears God, one who denies him. We all have one thing in common. We are heading towards the grave. There's a lot of things that happen in our lives until that point. It really is a snare because on the basis of this, because we can't know everything God is doing. It's a snare to spiritualize life according to our own observations or, or our ignorance, like how I feel to assume that prosperity is a reward from God for doing something right. Or a tragedy must be a judgment for God upon a particular thing. Uh, Jesus taught instead of trying to come to these judgments that we rather Look at our own need for repentance rather than condemning in Luke 13, verse one. This is what happened. It says there were present at that season. Some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus brought a couple of situations up from, I guess, pop culture, things that were happening, current events of the day. And he says, those Galileans that were executed, do you think they were worse sinners than anyone else that they suffered such a thing? And maybe the the disciples are like, well, yeah, obviously, because think of that bad thing that happened to them or the tower of Siloam, this tragedy where it fell and it collapsed and 18 people died. And he says, were they worse sinners that they suffered such things? Among those lives, they were clean and unclean. There were people who sacrificed and who did not, but each one would stand before God and face judgment. And it's very possible that we can, and the disciples did look at a tragedy or a difficulty, a conflict to advance an agenda, to condemn, to assert personal convictions, to say, this is why that happened. Um, As if we know exactly what God is doing from start to finish. In the States, thinking back, I remember many times where people suggested a natural disaster was a direct result of prayer to God in schools being unwelcome or, or because abortion was rife. This is why this tornado happened or this hurricane occurred or the nation is only prospering because we're allies with Israel. That's why we are blessed right now. Or because of the forefathers who came 350, 400 years before us. That's why we're reaping blessing today. Like spiritualizing things. It's easy to use problems to take shots at others. When the truth is we don't always know why God allows something. Jesus used both tragedies. Notice not to talk about those people, but to say, look at your own heart, repent of your own sin because you're going to the grave. Just like them, you will have to face God someday. So consider yourself, your manner of life, prepare to meet your God. And so when nation rises up against nation, we ought to look up to lift up our heads because our redemption draws nigh. And unlike man, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their sins, repent and live. Ecclesiastes nine, verse three. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun. That one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion for the living. Know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Solomon continues on this theme that it seemed unjust that the righteous would suffer the same as those who did evil. It is wrong that a person who's innocent would be murdered. And then the one that's guilty of murdering them should be released because mishandled evidence like that is unjust. That's wrong. But since justice systems are administered by imperfect people with secondhand knowledge of some of the facts, we can't rise to the level of God's perfect judgment in everything. We cannot know the wickedness that resides in the heart of men. Like God's not just judging on outcomes. He's not just judging actions. He's looking at the motive of your heart. When you do everything right, you're like a Pharisee, right? Clean on the outside, 
clean, upright living, but inside dead, dead in sins without repentance, full of pride and arrogance. He's judging that he looks right through what we do. Jeremiah 17, nine, 10, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord search the heart. I test the mind to give even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. We look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart and he says, who can know how wicked a man's heart is? I, the Lord, he knows he tries, he judges. It's madness to willfully sin. Knowing that the wages of sin is death forever to know that we will be held accountable. Now praise God. He provides a new heart for those who are born again and trust in him by faith in Jesus. We continue in these bodies that will ultimately go to the grave, but God answered the cry of David's heart that he prayed in Psalm 51, 10 create in me a clean heart. O God and renew a steadfast spirit in us. We are new creations through faith in Jesus. He renews us day by day. He leads us in truth. He guides us by his spirit. He helps us to walk in his ways and to do his will. You have a new heart because you have a new spirit. The Holy spirit now residing in you because you've received the gospel by his grace. I mean, we're convicted of sin. We're guided into all truth. We are comforted. We are helped. And if you have not received Jesus today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to, to give your life to Jesus to repent of your sin and trust in him as God. So while all things happen to all and all are going to the grave, Solomon contrasts then the living and the dead. And he says, well, the living are better off than those who are dead. It's better to be alive, better to be a living dog than a dead lion to Solomon. And those under the law, a dog was not part of the family like we have today. Uh, they were unclean, feral animals that had a propensity to violence, right? They would be biting. They would be getting into your rubbish. They would, your kids would not be safe around them. You would shoo them away. They would be carrying parasites and diseases and, and you, they were just unclean. The law even said that you should not bring the price of a prostitute or a dog into the, the temple. That was an abomination before God. And so dogs, that was something you would reserve a slur for a, someone you despised. And he says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Lions, regal, majestic, powerful, the king of beasts. This would have been a surprise to people to go, really? I'd rather, I'd rather be a lion than a dog. And he says, the benefit of being alive is we are conscious that our life will end. There's hope for you yet. There's hope for change. There's a hope for repentance. There's a hope for a reward for you because you are alive and conscious of God. And we have an opportunity now during this life to love God and others, to hate sin and repent of it, to be thankful for the life that God's given us. And those who have passed into eternity, their course is finished. They, their legacy will be a memory that fades in time. But for our lives now living by God's grace, there's potential for fruitfulness, for reward, for transformation that affects others positively forever. Now a dog may prefer the size, strength, or the roar of a lion. You know, the little yappy dog like thinks it's a lion, but it's not. 
uh, you might wish that you had the gifting or godly influence of believers like Paul or the preaching ability of a Spurgeon or the zeal of a modern day martyr for the sake of Christ. You may see yourself as insignificant, maybe not even comparable to these who have gone before us yet consider this. It is better for the world. It is better for the testimony of Christ and his ministry for you to live for Jesus today than walk in anyone else's footsteps. That's not Christ. Your life and testimony is more needful and powerful than the biographies of missionaries who have gone to eternity because you're alive. There is potential. There is reward. There is hope by your life through Jesus Christ and his grace that you can make an eternal impact on the lives of countless people by his design. By the power of the Holy spirit, we can have the resolve of Paul to very gladly spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. Now to believers in Ephesus, Paul shared how he faithfully taught repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus. He's facing arrest. He's facing death in Jerusalem in chains, but he was undeterred in acts 20, 24 saying, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry, which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, we can be resolute on the word of God. We can stand strong by his grace. And as we run with endurance, the race that God has set before us with joy, we're to love God, we're to serve him and others to encourage and edify, to build up and strengthen the body in his love through obedience to him. And God's given you a ministry, whether you're a pastor or a parent or a parishioner to be praying, to give, to provide an example of meekness and humility to love and obey scripture, to proclaim it through obedience in your life, to bear one another's burdens, to carry your own load, to walk in newness of life as an ambassador of Jesus. The world doesn't need another Paul or Spurgeon. The Lord desires you to be you as he created you to be. Not that your will would be done, but that his will would be accomplished through you by his grace. He has set before you a race and your call is to run that with joy. And by his grace, he leads us. He empowers us. And we're still here. There's hope for us. And we have a living hope in our savior, Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes nine, verse seven, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity for that is your portion in life. And in the labor, which you perform under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Solomon considers life under the sun. It's coming to an end. He says, live life to the full. My dad used to say to me, make hay while the sun shines. We weren't farmers, but that cliche or proverb, it's to seize the present opportunity. Sometimes I will put off, I will look to the future for an opportunity. Like when the grass is really wet, I'm like, that's going to be hard to get into the catcher. It's going to be hard to pour out. I'm going to wait till it dries out a bit. 
And that's the same sort of thing with hay. In wet weather, hay is difficult to gather. It rots. And if you were to have wet hay and make a bale, did you know that moisture in hay is the primary cause of hay fires? It's a bit of a surprise. Like you would think that water would prevent that, but because of the moisture and the bacterial action as it's sitting out in the sun, these hay bales can get 50, 60, 70 degrees until they combust. They literally just catch on fire and then it's all ruined because it was gathered while it was wet. We're encouraged to eat and drink with joy, seeing everything we have has been provided as a gift from God. And it would have been very rare to have white clothes. Let your garments always be white. There were many people who didn't have any white clothes because they're having wool Uh, that, that wouldn't have been, or to keep them white in a, in a dusty environment. And he says, you've got white clothes, wear them, wear your nice clothes, anoint your head with oil, take opportunity for refreshment. Your life is short and vain, but we have the company of family and a spouse, friends. In other words, enjoy all life has to offer under the sun. So that's a gift from God for you to use. Like the servants given talents in the parable, Jesus told, we've been allotted different portions, roles and circumstances, and don't allow what you don't have to strip you of the gratitude and thanksgiving of what God has given you and what he allows you to use, not just for your own use, but to give to others. And there's a sense of urgency as well to put your back into your labor, like saying, do everything with all your might, do everything you can. If you're going to do a task, don't just do it half-heartedly, do it with everything. When I ran cross country in high school, we were taught to push ourselves during that five kilometer race to maintain maximum sustainable effort. You know, you don't want to finish the race and feel like, oh, I feel really good. They want you feeling bad. They want you like almost getting sick because you have exerted everything you had to perform well. So do it with all your might. There's a day coming when you will no longer be able to do it. So while you can do it, Jesus said he must do the works while it is day of the father because night was coming when no one can work that motivated Jesus that his time on earth was limited. He saw that there was an end to it. And so he says, while I'm here, I am going to be obedient to the father. Night is coming when no one can work. And Paul echoed this in Colossians 3, 23 and 24. He says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ in the workplace. It is like Jesus is your manager. We pay our taxes as if God himself has given us an invoice from the ATO that we are to pay. At school, you're to respect and listen to your teacher as if the Lord is speaking to you. You're doing it like you would be listening to him. You're showing the honor and respect that's deserved. We serve the Lord knowing we will not might or maybe we will receive an inheritance in the kingdom of God as co-heirs with Christ. That is phenomenal what God has promised us. We have a brief season of influence right now upon the earth while you're alive among people who know God and among those who do not know him. And there are people who will not venture into a church or sit through a sermon. They will carefully observe your manner of life and the sermon, your life and your words are preaching to them. 
and you can shine bright for Jesus today. So let's be enthusiastic. Let's be joyful despite potential discouragements. Let's have confidence and courage in the Lord. Be looking to him. And we might not see any great uh, fruitfulness of our efforts, but that is the Lord's work. He will do it. He will accomplish it. Paul also wrote in Galatians 6, 10 and, uh, 6, 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's an important step to choose to follow Jesus, to repent of your sin and follow him. But our new life in Christ is not a sprint. It is like a long distance race. There's many who have started well that over the years, they grew weary in doing good and they missed out on a great harvest. They missed out. They didn't have to. But when we rely on our own strength, when we focus on the flaws of others or our own failures, we can grow discouraged. We can become weary and bitter. So he says, do not let that happen. You know, watch your heart, guard it. We're to make the most of the opportunities God gives us, especially to bless and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Matthew Henry said this. He said, when we are in the grave, it will be too late to mend the errors of life, too late to repent and make our peace with God, too late to lay up anything in store for eternal life. It must be done now or never. That's a good perspective to have just to have a, a, a focus on doing the will of God and obeying him now and considering Christ and others, it opens our eyes to opportunities that when we count our lives dear to ourselves, we never see, we never see an open door. We, we can't really see anything but ourselves or what our own goals or ambitions are. But when we consider Christ, then doors begin to open to us and we can walk through them. And, and I, I believe that when God opens a door, it's not for us to decide, Hmm, should I go through that door? What's on the other side of that door? What's going to happen when I walk through that door? If he opens a door and, and says, it's not just to show you scenery. It's so that you'd walk through it. That's what doors are for. Doors are for passing through. So you pass through that door. You go where he has lead, where he is leading you, trusting that he will provide. And sometimes God will close a door. You really want to be open. You would love that door to be open, but how about going through the door he has opened and doing the thing he's called you to do faithfully right, right now, today, Ecclesiastes nine eleven. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. He observed that there was no rhyme or reason sometimes between victory and failure. The, the strongest, mightiest armies do not always win the battle or the war. Many times we've seen that this in sport where you have a team that has this star power, huge payroll, all these, um, all the best players on that team, but they may miss the finals. And you're like, how can that happen? How can you have all these great athletes together? And they're just terrible as a team. I would never would have expected that. I thought they'd just run the table, but they lose out. Intelligence and research doesn't always mean that you make the wise financial choices that pay off. Somebody could just 
go on a whim and make a better investment despite all your hours and experience of investing. Nabal, he's an example of a man in the Bible who was so foolish and arrogant that no one could have a sensible conversation with him. But the man was incredibly wealthy. So it wasn't that he was really intelligent or wise or sensible that he was wealthy. It was by the grace of God. There's no guarantees of life under the sun, except that it will end. That's basically Solomon's uh, observation that you have a student at the bottom of the class who goes on to achieve prominence and fame and someone else that you're like, Oh man, he could, he could do anything. And he ends up being in poverty or without a house. And just like, how does that work? So Solomon's observing all these things and trying to understand life under the sun. He says time and chance happens to them all. One can have great skill, but it doesn't mean success is coming. Many people do anything they can to attract good luck or to avoid bad luck. A biblical worldview, it acknowledges that God is all we have is by his grace. When we have this promise of eternal life, there's no, no luck involved with that at all. No, no chance. We have a solid objective reality of God and his word and his promises that he will fulfill. I've heard people call Australia the lucky country. I believe we are a blessed country by God. Luck has nothing to do with it. Not only is life on earth unpredictable, but we don't know when our lives will end. So, you know, your life will end someday in a theoretical sense, but you don't know when. And he compares mankind to fish swimming along, just having a feed or, or uh, trying to drive off potential predators from their nests when suddenly they're caught in a net. They, they had no idea that it was happening. A bird that's flown into a snare that they just didn't see. In 2001, I remember driving to work up the 52 freeway and I was listening to a sports program. And they're like, oh, breaking news that there's been a, a commercial uh, plane that's flown into one of the Twin Towers in New York. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know what the Twin Towers were. And then I, I knew by the end of the day what had happened, um, that the people on that flight, the people in the building, the people just walking along on the ground, going about their day, they had no idea that a great tragedy had struck. Likely all of us on a personal level have experienced shocking personal news, unexpected tragedies when lives were lost. Like no one expects to be gunned down in a, in a concert in Vegas or a musical festival in Israel. No one's planning on that. These tragedies affirm that we have limited human understanding and an unescapable mortality. And so Solomon is causing, he is just turning our attention to consider our lives that they will end. And we don't know when. We often imagine we have much more time on earth than we actually do. Instead of living our lives with our eyes on Jesus, who is our life, it's very natural that we begin to focus on our plans or goals or ambitions, doing things our way. And that can lead to trouble. Think about the Israel when they went against AI, they had just God destroyed Jericho. They had this great victory and they go, you know, AI, it's this little town. We'll just go take it out. Send, I think it was 10,000 of men to go destroy them. And they lost. And Joshua was like, oh no, what has happened? People are going to be blaspheming your name. Get off the ground. Don't you know there's sin in the camp? That's why you can't stand before your enemies. So they dealt with Achan and his sin. And the next attack, he said, send 30,000 men behind the city. Wait, we'll draw them out. And then when we draw them out, then you take the city. 
and it'll be basically won without a fight. And they won. Uh, An example is Samson. Delilah arranges this uh, unexpected haircut and pampering session for him. And he ends up, you know, he's betrayed the Lord in uh, revealing the secret of his strength. And God causes him to fall into the hands of the Philistines. And when he awakes, he says, I will rise up like other times and shake myself free. But he didn't know the Holy Spirit had left him. And he was bound, he was arrested, he was enslaved. And so in light of our ignorance and God's rule, James 4, 13 and through 15, it says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live or do this or that don't assume life will just go on. He says, God willing, we shall live and God willing, we shall do this or that because our plans, our goals, they are arbitrary. They're ours. They're not necessarily God's God's plans and purposes are infinitely superior to ours. Our life. It's compared to a vapor that's vanishes quickly. And so we need to submit to the Lord and his plans and following his leading And rather than lamenting, because it's very easy when you have this, you know, the Ecclesiastes vanity of vanity, we're like, oh, life is so short. What's the point? You know, we kind of can lose sight of the context, but we can rejoice in God who is our life, who is our life forever. Like we have eternal life in Christ. We have reason for rejoicing. We have a living hope. And so we should not despair because a great meal is over too soon. A party ends suddenly. Or, um, yeah, even life is over before we thought it would be. Know that he is our life and we are sustained by him. So Ecclesiastes 9, 13, this wisdom I have also seen under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it and a great king came against it, besieged it and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Solomon shares a story about a powerful king. He besieged a small and insignificant city. There were only a few people in there. And there was a poor man who by his wisdom delivered them. And it says he set up these great snares, these siege engines against the city. You would think that this powerful king with his army and his, his, uh, His engines would just destroy that city. It had no chance, but this man, he had this wisdom that they listened to and the city was saved all of them. And he says, ironically, this poor man who, who saved the city, he wasn't acknowledged or even remembered. He was forgotten. The one who deserved credit, he ought to have been promoted to mayor or governor, at least maybe even a king. It's just a small city, but he should have been like, you know, Hey, that was really good. You helped us out. We need someone like you in in leadership. They didn't come to that conclusion. They just forgot about him. When God used Gideon to deliver Israel from the Midianites, what did they do? They said, rule over us and the sons after you, we want you as our king. And he's like, no, no, God is your king. So the irony of their response should be great to us. And he says, this is amazing that this man, he gave them wisdom that gave them life, but they forgot about him. 
No one listened to him after the danger passed. The siege engines came, everyone's afraid, but now they're saved and they forgot all about him. And it's really a a bit of a confronting parable for Christians because Jesus is wisdom for us. By his humble sacrifice, he saved us from sin and death, hell. He's overcome Satan's power. Yet it doesn't follow in light of salvation that we seek him, we listen to him or obey him. We can forget about him. We can be overwhelmed by the circumstances of this life and not even seek his counsel, not have him as the Lord of our life, but just only when the trouble comes, do we think to, to consider what he would have us do or how he would have us live. Well, we'll call on him when trouble arises, but in the meantime, we prefer to live life our own way. This is very natural for us. You may not remember the last thing Jesus said to you, just like you can't remember what you had for lunch yesterday. But praise the Lord, he's given us his word that we can read. We can hear our Lord speak. We can heed his word every day that he's not some poor man. He made himself poor and of no reputation, but he is the almighty. He is the king of kings. He is our Lord and our savior. And so let us honor and extol him. Ecclesiastes 9, 17, words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And these verses supply the application for this chapter in light of Jesus being wisdom for us. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom's personified as a woman crying aloud, telling fools to turn from their foolishness. Now, so everyone can hear, Hey, come to me. If you're hungry, come to me. Um, eat eat bread that I prepared instead of the stolen bread and waters that are sweet. When the Rabshakeh came from Assyria to taunt and intimidate the Hebrews in their own language, he shouted, they should not trust God. Consider how they've destroyed all those other nations and not to listen to their King Hezekiah, but they remain silent in obedience to their King because he says, when he comes and starts intimidating you, don't say anything. They listen to him. The king, it says he tore his clothes. He went into the temple. He prayed for Israel and God brought salvation. He silenced the shouts of the Rabshakeh in death and the world. It is full of militant, loud voices that oppose God and his word, but loud volume do not make, it does not make lies true. The truth in spoken quietly in a small, still voice, it remains true. It may be the one voice out of all the voices, the quietest one, but that is true. And God speaks in a still small voice. When God spoke to Elijah, that still small voice, it had a bigger impact on his heart and mind than the powerful wind that tore the rocks apart, the earthquake or the raging fire. God was not in any of that phenomena, but he said, then a still small voice. And he recognized it was God speaking. And he drew near to him to hear what he said. And twice before the earthquake and fire and wind, God asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? He asked him, then all the, all those crazy things happened. He's like, wow. And then Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah complained. He said, God's people have forgotten your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And now they want to kill me. 
Elijah, he was more influenced by what others were doing and saying than God. And so my question is, what are the voices you're listening to? What voices have been influencing you? Elijah had been a man of great influence by God to destroy the worship of Baal, to destroy those prophets who were leading the people astray, who called down fire from heaven in the sight of all that they would say, God is the Lord. Yet he fell prey to being influenced by everything but God. And if it can happen to Elijah, it can happen to me and it can happen to you. Jesus cried out in John 7, 37 on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus spoke of the Holy spirit that he would give that he would send to fill believers. And after his glorification would empower us to do his will. He takes up residence in us when we believe the gospel. And when we're born again, we're joined to the body of Christ. And it's true. One sinner can do uh, destroy much good, but God is good to speak to us, to help us, to make us fruitful for his glory, the church and the world full of sinners, right? But God desires to make your life and my life a source of living water that will satisfy souls that will refresh with everlasting life. We don't know how long we have on earth, but let us use the days we have left to honor Jesus Christ because he is our life. So let's heed, let's seek the Lord that we would hear his still small voice and we'd hear it in the Bible that he stamps upon our hearts and speak the truth in love. Instead of being influenced at the mercy of the circumstances of this world or what we hear is happening, what we're afraid could happen. Let's be an encouraging influence for others to joyfully run the race that God set before them with endurance. And let's savor that flavor. Let's savor the flavor of doing the will of God, knowing him and choosing his will rather than our own. Wisdom is better than weapons of war and Christ is wisdom for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your wisdom. And that Jesus is wisdom for us, that he helps us, that you have sent the Holy Spirit to fill us. And in this world that's full of trials and difficulties and wars and, and violence through uh, the pressure that's put on Christians to conform to the world. Lord, we pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our mind. You would fill us with your spirit. You would cause us to glorify you and be fruitful for your holy name. I pray that we would not be those influenced by the things we hear or what happens to us or how we're feeling as much as being influencers for your glory to be those through whom your light shines as the, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And I thank you, Lord, that you, uh, you are the God who loves us. You're the God who does all things that nothing is difficult for you. And so we pray for peace, Lord. We pray for peace in Israel we pray for peace throughout the whole world that's suffering conflict and difficulties in our own hearts, Lord, that can be so filled with, with anger and bitterness or just weariness, feelings of depression, loss and pain. Lord, we pray that you would do a healing work in our hearts that we would say the joy of the Lord is my strength. And so Lord, help us 
guide us, direct us and make us sensitive to your voice that we might hear it and obey it in Jesus name. Amen.